Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, and me, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker. Our featured guest today is Jade Wallace. Jade Wallace is a writer from the Niagara Fruit Belt, currently living just south of the Detroit River and just north of Lake Erie. Wallace's writing has won the Muriel's Journey Poetry Prize and Coastal Shelf's Funny and Poignant Poetry Contest, placed third in the Ken Belford Poetry Contest, has been a finalist for the Wurgle Flump Humor Poetry Prize, and has been nominated for the Journey Prize. They are the author of several solo and collaborative chapbooks, the reviews editor for Carousel Magazine, and the co-founder of MADE, a collaborative writing entity. Love is a Place But You Cannot Live There is their first full book. Welcome back to the show, Jade. Thank you so much for having me, not once, but twice. It is an honor. It's our pleasure. So congratulations on this first big book. Uh, although you've written for journals and chat books, what was it about this process that was different for you, do you think? Uh, the time. <laughs> it took me a while to get it together. Um, I've been, I mean, I've been writing in a loose sense for a long time, but it's been about 13 or so years since my first chat book came out. and. Not to say I haven't written full-length books prior to this. I have, although hopefully they will never see the light of day. <laughs> um, so I found like with chapbooks, it was pretty easy to get, you know, 10 or so poems together and sort of be like, this is a chapbook. It's going to be a little limited edition run and whatever. But I think there's a certain pressure with one's first book to try to make it something worthwhile, deserving of, you know, a, whatever it is, 500 copy print run. and and a full-length publication and all of that. Um, so I had, you know, certainly written books worth of material before, but it wasn't until I started to conceptualize um, a sort of guiding principle for actually putting a large number of poems together in one collection that I really felt like there was a book there and not just a random assemblage of pages I'd written. Uh, which apparently takes me a long time. I know some people are like 22 and their first book's out and that's wonderful for them. I am I am not that type. Things take me a while to acclimate to and get my mind around and whatnot. So this was a while in the making and that for me was the biggest defining feature of a book as opposed to a chapbook. What was it like with uh, from the editorial process, working with an editor for that extended process time? I've definitely had some experience working with editors here and there, typically not on full manuscripts, obviously, but um, I, I'd say it was very similar. And I think part of that is my fault in a sense, um, because I tend to go into a manuscript with already, well, I suppose not go into, by the time the manuscript is assembled, I have a very clear idea of like the sections and the ordering and and what sort of the driving impulses are behind it and all of that 
So by the time it's a manuscript and before the editor even sees it, I'm pretty clear on what I want it to be. And I know that's not certainly not the case for all writers. I mean, I've heard of a lot of writers, especially with their first collection, you know, kind of having like a grab bag, if you will, of poems, and then an editor really helps them assemble it. And I didn't want that. <laughs> I'm <laughs> stubborn and um, and stubborn uh, over again. Um, so I like I tend to have very clear ideas about what I want, and I go in, and then like the editorial process in this case was very much about just sort of ensuring there were no extraneous bits in the collection, um, that it was cohesive and that the individual poems were working as effectively as they could be. So it was a bit more of like just a cleanup process rather than any kind of radical reimagining of the collection. And so in that sense, for me, it was very much like my previous sort of editing, my more limited editing experiences. Location and place are an overarching trope throughout this work, whether ghost towns of Ontario, a few days in New York or New Brunswick. What is it about a sense of place that draws you to write about it? Oh, I'm very um, <laughs> drawn to the atmospheric in general. I love I love sort of the <laughs> vibes is definitely the wrong word, but the um, the kind of nebulous energy and and um sense and emotional resonance that one gets from a place that are very hard to locate like i think a lot of times when we have like a lot of emotional resonance with something it's like a, a human relationship or something like that like something that's easier to pin down why we're getting this sort of resonance from it um i think places can be a little bit mysterious and it like in a way that borders on the spiritual for me and i'm not particularly a spiritual person but i find there's like a sense of oh for lack of a better word i can't help but thinking of like what freud called the sort of oceanic feeling that one gets like this overwhelm with like the entirety of existence that i find when you go into a place whether it's like a natural space or a large metropolis or whatever it is it's like easy to be like overwhelmed and you realize how small you are and how how vast everything is around you and you get like this kind of sense of awe and i find that certain places in particular are really evocative in that way and so yeah it's like um i'm i guess that with the way i used to feel when going to church back when i was religious like that's kind of the, it's a similar experience for me Well, you talked a little bit about having a very clear idea of the sections and how you wanted things arranged in the book. And it's divided into sub-themes like the breakdown of a relationship, um, extended family, meeting family members of a new love. Um, what was it about these particular topics that you wanted to explore? What drew you to those? Well, I have to say this book because it was sort of I'll loosely categorize it as my like 20s writing <laughs> uh, I am in my 30s now so it, it feels um I know it's an arbitrary distinction and yet I feel like there is a little there's a hint of truth there um so my quote-unquote 20s writing was very much characterized by like um, self-investigation I guess I would say where you're really trying to suss out like who you are as a person in relation to others, because I mean, I think that's the way most of us self-define. And so a lot of the poetry I was writing at the time was similarly very self-reflexive, uh, very much about um, plumbing the depths of one's own interiority or whatever. 
And so I think that's totally what you see in the poems. They're very much poems that are about like constantly, they're not just about me, but they're constantly defining me as a person in relation to other people and places and the experiences I was having. And a lot of these are very much autobiographical works. Um, or if they're not autobiographical, it's like there's something I secondhand witnessed or something like that. Um, and so I guess like I would contrast that with what I would call my 30 something writing, which is very much about like an interest in larger concepts or social issues or or whatever, like a kind of I'm sick of writing about myself. I'm dying to write about something that's not me. Um, and that's sort of the direction it's gone after this book. But this book is still very much like me focused. Um, and I, th I feel like that was a necessary thing that I had to sort of go through in order to be able to also then write about these other subjects later. Um, and I look back on the book because I mean, these are all poems, honestly, that I wrote probably 2017 or earlier, like these are five year plus old poems for me. And so I no longer personally feel extremely close to them, like they no longer represent my current experience of the world in any way. But at the time, it was it was just a reflection of what I was completely absorbed by. And so that was what I was writing about. Environment and protection also plays a role in many of these poems. For example, animals in strange houses. Uh, you talk about how geese are pushed to roost in certain in urban areas. Uh, and you gather the bones, talks about the decline of birds. You also reference indigenous language in, and I am going to apologize for my pronunciation, uh, in humans under Tenagahi and issues of settlers forcing industrialization. Is this something that's important for you to, to convey in your poetry? I would say yes. Um, I grew up, as, as you mentioned, Mubai, I grew up in the Niagara Fruit Belt. And so it's a very interesting area because the, the urban coexists very closely with the rural and even with the wild, essentially. Um, and there's a lot of green space. I mean, we're, the Niagara Fruit Belt is like part of the green belt, which uh, I feel compelled to mention is currently under threat because of our current provincial government. But I suppose just being surrounded constantly by, by the agricultural, but then also the, like, I mean, the wild is maybe a stretch. It's, they're very much, um, spaces that humans have invaded in many ways but these like the, the more wild I guess the um in contrast to an urban space obviously anyways to get to the to the, the point of the question um being so closely involved with uh like plant and animal life that is not wholly dictated by humans I feel really makes you sensitive to that sort of thing I'm and it did for me anyways. And I noticed it particularly, I suppose, when I actually left Niagara and went to Toronto and was in like an urban space that is so dictated by human whims. And I really keenly missed having proximity to spaces where humans didn't really fully control things. Like there were, you know, flora and fauna going 
doing their thing and it was it was slightly beyond human control in a way um and and so it, it's just been a preoccupation like every time i go back to niagara to visit my parents i'm just um completely mesmerized by by the amount of of like quote unquote natural life there and so it every time i also consequently go into any other space like elsewhere in ontario as um, you mentioned or new brunswick or wherever it is um i tend to notice those same things like things that remind me i guess probably of the place where i came from and and that very thing which i'm obviously so um engaged by is is under threat constantly because humans are constantly trying to take over everything and resource extract and all of that and so it feels both very precious and extremely precarious and so even when i'm not trying to write about that it just it ends up in there because i'm constantly noticing it around me i think what do you think we can learn from talking about the environment and environmental issues in art oh i would honestly love for humans to just like lay off a bit like sit back stop trying to progress um you know just like relax and be nice to each other for a while instead of constantly trying to like expand empire and and all of that terrible stuff like to go back to what you said about you know there's like these moments in the collection where i obviously do talk about colonialism and and it's with a certain self-consciousness because i'm obviously like you know settler um or like embroiled in settler culture, you know, despite my best intentions. Um, and yeah, I, <laughs> I, I think it's a bit of a pipe dream, but I would love if humans would just scale back on their like industrial and technological progressions a little bit. I mean, focus on, you know, making sure people are fed and, and things like that, you know, the more basic needs instead of constantly trying to um be capitalists <laughs> you made some really interesting choices around style and formatting for example in prevailing currents talking about the reversing falls in new brunswick the typesetting literally steps <laughs> out of sync what were your thoughts behind choosing free verse and did you experiment with other poetic forms yes and no so free verse definitely is I think basically the only mode I use in this collection, which is very different from the way I started writing poetry and even the way I write poetry now. I started writing poetry, it was very traditional rhyming poetry. This is when I was like very young. Um, but I eventually wanted to step outside of that. And rather than becoming experimental with form, I was just like, fuck form. I just, like, I don't want to think about it. I don't, no rhymes, no anything. Um, and I really fixated on like the the content of the poetry and and like um, like they're kind of quasi narrative poems I think here and I was very fixated on narrative and and character development which sounds weird in a poem but that's what I was focused on um, and and since then I've sort of uh, mitigated that position a little bit and I try to incorporate some more traditional formal elements with more experimental or informal elements. Um, but when I was writing this collection, I was, yeah, very much trying to find like a voice that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't super invested in, in any kind of more determined 
sort of form. Like I didn't want to write sonnets because sonnets have such a loaded history or, you know, villanelles or, or whatever, all these like forms, haiku, they all have extremely rich histories. And, and because this is, as I mentioned previously, a sort of more self-reflexive collection for me, um, I felt very contrarian and <laughs> resistant to any kind of real formality. Um, so I think that explains sort of the preoccupation with free verse, but nevertheless, um, you know, I was still interested in thinking about it as poetry. So obviously, like, there are just elements of poetry you really can't get away from. There are, you know, line breaks, because even if you choose not to use line breaks, they still haunt you. <laughs> um, and things like that, like formatting on the page, like where it appears. So you mentioned the um, prevailing currents, uh, where for anyone who hasn't seen the poem, there's a portion of the poem that's left justified, and then another portion of the poem that's right justified, as if like the poem is almost fighting with itself over its form. Um, and I know some people don't like that kind of uh, odd type setting. I've, I've heard people like they hate center justified, they hate right justified, and all of that. And I was young, and I did not care about those arguments. And I was like, it makes sense to me that things would just be you know, the, the poem would reflect so uh, visually <laughs> what's actually happening in it, which is like this um, dialogic kind of conflict. So I'd say mostly that was a, a little bit of naivety, but like naivety can take us to some interesting places sometimes. So I appreciate my younger self for that. <laughs> So what was the influence of some of the other writers that you mentioned in this book? For example, Canadian writer Gary Barwin and classic Keats. Um, how how did they inspire you? <laughs> um, well, I can answer those both fairly directly. Um, I mean, Gary Barwin, I sort of mentioned only because I, I know him loosely. Like we've corresponded at brief points over the years. He wrote a an experimental review for Carousel, for example. Um, and as I'm the reviews editor of Carousel, we obviously had a little bit of interaction around that. Um, but mostly, <laughs> um, I find he's like a very noticeable figure on the sort of Canadian literary scene, broadly speaking. Um, and so, that, that just happened to be like something he had said to me on social media and I was it, it kind of stuck with me and like as I was writing the poem I couldn't really get that that vision of the bookstore out of my head even after I'd been to the, the real bookstore and obviously had my own impressions of it and whatever um but yeah he certainly can turn a, a memorable phrase sometimes so I felt compelled to include that um John Keats I am I, I like John Keats, but I constantly disagree with him. And um, I, I often feel compelled, I feel most compelled to write responses if I don't like something. Uh, so La Belle Dame Sans Merci uh, was what I was responding to, for example, in The Mercy of Fairies. And it was really just because I was like, well, Keats has written this beautiful poem and I, I completely don't relate to it at all like this makes no sense to me you are visited by this incredible like fairy woman person <laughs> and then all you can do afterwards is complain about it that's ridiculous and so I really wanted to write write a poem in which the opposite of that happened essentially because I just thought it was such a silly poem for him to have written as much as I admire his technical skill which I think far exceeds mine but 
um, there, there's a little bit of like petulance in it. And um, <laughs> actually, one of the one of the first people who read this collection <laughs> commented, and I, I don't know if they're meaning this as an insult or not, but they said there's like, there's a kind of meanness of spirit in some of these poems. And I was like, that's fair. There is. There's like, I don't think I'm a mean person on the whole. And I actually, I don't think these are mean poems, but there's like a tiny little edge of resentment sometimes in the poems for sure. And I think this is a good example of that. Like I can like Keith and still, you know, be a little bit mean to him, I guess. Whose writing inspires you these days, do you think? Oh, these days. Oh, that is a good question. Um, I've, I've been reading no Keats lately. Um, a lot more contemporary. Um, I don't want to say my peers, but closer to people who are closer to my peers. They're writing now. They're they tend to be a little bit, you know, um, situated more like me, like they're often in, in Canada, things like that. Uh, and part of that's just, again, doing the, like the reviews editorship for Carousel. I do find myself reading a lot more, a lot more of what's going on currently. I'm just trying to keep up with with what's coming out and what you know kind of deserves attention and all that. But the result is that I've I've been reading a lot more widely than I think I probably used to, and and I now find it impossible to really point to who my major influences are at the moment. Um, like there are certainly writers I like and am eager to read more of them, but I can't actually see their influence in my writing the way I used to be able to, I think. Yeah, so that's a hard question for me at the moment. <laughs> so what are you working on these days? Oh, these days, yes. Um, so my second poetry collection, which is called The Work is Done When We Are Dead, is nearly done, which I guess means we're almost dead. I don't like <laughs> the logic of the title, I guess, but... Uh, no, it's, um, I'm pretty excited about it. I've been working on it basically ever since I stopped full-time writing this one. So the last five years, I've been pecking away at the second manuscript. Um, I was, since we're a Windsor podcast, I feel compelled to mention that um, the Windsor Endowment for the Arts was kind enough to give me a little grant to work on it. And so I've, it's really sort of pushed me towards getting it completed. and. Um, so uh, as the title suggests, it is they're very much poems about labor and sort of exploring like what what counts as labor and what um, how like sort of how construing things as work can sometimes then affect our relationship to them. I mean, there's I think the easiest example is like there's no end of discussion these days about like emotional labor and like what do we actually mean when we talk about emotional labor and which spheres is it appropriate to consider something emotional labor versus not and so this is like one of sort of many labor related questions the collection really really meditates upon and it's certainly not just about you know traditional like paid labor but just about all the kinds of work we do whether it's as artists or as activists or um in even in like just our individual relationships like what are the kinds of work we do and <laughs> To what extent is it useful and not useful to see these things as work versus like what else might we construe them as? So that's the one project. Um, 
And then the other project, which is tentatively done, is just my my novel, which I wrote as part of my master's thesis called Anomia. Um, and I'm just uh, still trying to figure out if there's any outstanding edits to make on it and also kind of submitting it to publishers. And I'm in that sort of liminal stage where I'm like, not quite sure what it is. I think it's maybe done mostly, but we'll see. <laughs> Would you like to read some of your work for our listeners? Oh, yes, sure. Um, so I guess it makes sense to read something from the forthcoming book. Well, maybe since we talked about, um, I don't think, don't think I read The Mercy of Fairies last time, but since we were just discussing it, I think I will read that. So you can um, see in full, <laughs> full view my pettiness about John Keats. The Mercy of Fairies. She smiled before she kissed me, teeth flashing like talismans. Misery left the room and closed the door behind. Her mouth tasted like meadowsweet, oak, and broom, as though she were the incarnation of the woman Math and Gwydion dreamed. Her skin burned with vervain under my hands as her apartment rose farther above the scent of night and cars and road-worn courage below. She took the cold lily from my brow and adorned me in blood red roses. I want you now, she said, four words to finish the charm. Still, I did not linger in the circle of her room when she suggested that I go. I withdrew to the birds, beginning to sing in the hedge and to the morning light inquiring how many rings the world could hold. Jade Wallace, thank you so much for joining us today. It's lovely to hear you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.